Hello, I'm Sheila Kavanaugh, and this is Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidori. Thanks for joining us. Sheila, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you a bit about queer bathroom stories. But before we talk about the production, tell me a little bit more about Libido Productions and what the journey was getting to this production. Well, Libido Productions was founded in 2010, and the mandate of the theater company was to produce verbatim theater and to focus on arts-based research productions, particularly those that feature the lives and complexities of queer and trans people. Uh, Queer Bathroom Stories is Libido Productions' first professional production. Our amateur production, which was then called Queer Bathroom Monologues, was staged in 2011 at the Toronto Fringe Festival, and I'm pleased to say we won the Audience Pick Award. And after that, we were so enthusiastic about the way the play was received that I applied for funding and got a very generous grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And I have a number of other smaller scale but fabulous sponsors. And we've been working on the new script and it has been professionally dramaturged by Professor Judith Rudikoff, who worked with Nina Arsenault on the Silicone Diaries. And now we have a polished script. Rehearsals began last Saturday and we're ready for the opening on June 3rd. Okay, so... Uh, tell me a bit about the uh, the pro because you are the the playwright as well as the you know, producer of this. Uh, tell me a bit about the process of creating uh, the script. I, I know that a lot of people are familiar with that sort of the the interview method of playwriting from things like Laramie Project sure. and, and plays like that. So tell me a bit about then the the genesis of the queer bathroom monologues. Absolutely. I wrote a book called Queering Bathrooms, Gender, Sexuality, and the Hygienic Imagination, which is based on 100 interviews with LGBT folks in major Canadian and American cities. And one of the questions I and my research assistants asked people was, how do you want the results of this research to be used? And one of my interviewees said that she'd really like the stories to become part of a traveling exhibition of some sort or part of a, a theatrical or performance-based show. And I personally shuddered only because, you know, I'm an academic and I had never, ever engaged in the world of theater production before. But then I thought to myself, well, why not? Because by the time I published the book, Queering Bathrooms, with the University of Toronto Press, one of the things I realized was the most exciting, the most intriguing and passionate stories told by people were actually edited out of the book because an academic text usually lends itself to quotable sound bites. But I just couldn't let these wonderful stories go. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a play. And I entered myself into the Toronto Fringe Festival. Lo and behold, I was put on a waiting list. And two months before the festival started, they said, you're in. And I very foolishly said, (laughs) great. And then I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, I don't have a director. I don't have a cast. I have a draft of a script. I've never produced a play in my life. You know, what am I thinking? Uh, But fortunately, I was able to hook up with a fantastic director by the name of Megan Watson and I'm happy to say she's still on board as the director for this version of the Queer Bathroom Stories and I had a wonderful cast including Tyson James, 
Chai Ryan Spain and Hallie Burt, along with a really, really fabulous group who worked as stage managers and helped me with publicity and did a number of things related to the production. And we worked day and night and we pulled it off. And a lot of people came to the opening and then each show, the theater grew larger and larger and larger and people really seemed to like the show and it was such a thrilling experience for me and for the cast and crew as well that we all decided we're committed to this project I decided I'm going to apply for funding and we're going to make this into a proper professional production at Buddies which is exactly what we did. So, I mean, what were some things that you experienced coming from that academic world and, and entering into this? I guess it's a very different, it's a, having an, an interviewer recording this information and then making that accessible for a theater audience. Tell me a bit about that process and your sort of mm -hmm. adjustments. Well, let me first say that the world of academe and the world of theater are very different. <laughs> and so I think I got a crash course in theater. Unfortunately, my production team, my director and cast in particular, were very patient with me <laughs> and explaining, okay, Sheila, you can use these words in an academic text, but it really doesn't fly on stage. You know, we don't talk this way in theater. And so they helped me a lot with the editing of the script as did my dramaturg, Judith Rudikoff. So we did work a fair bit on the script. In terms of the, actually, the original composition of the script, what I did was I identified the stories that for me were the most fascinating. The stories that were counterintuitive, specifically to our normative ideas about sex and gender. I identified the stories that were funny, that were passionate, that were violent, and also that were mundane. Because I thought, you know, if we're going to stage something called the Queer Bathroom Stories, I want to cover the gamut. And I want to really explore and delve deep into the variety of experiences those of us who are queer or trans or gender variant have in the bathrooms. And so as soon as I identified the stories I wanted to work with, I started to edit them in the way in which you have to when you're producing verbatim theater. There's always some degree of editing involved. I also had to be very careful to respect the confidentiality and anonymity of those who shared their stories. And so I did change certain demographic pieces of information to ensure that nobody would be outed or exposed. And I actually have a very interesting story to tell about that, because when the show was first staged at the Fringe Festival, three of the people I interviewed actually came to see the show. And wow. I really, you know, I really wondered, oh my goodness, you know, are they going to like the show? Are they going, you know, how are they going to feel? And I thought, well, I, I, I was just perplexed because I thought, how would they possibly respond? Because this was the first instance, really, of, you know, those I met in an interview setting meeting me again in the theater space. And one of the fascinating things I learned, or one of the fascinating things that happened, was one of the interviewees who shared a fabulous story, which I used in the script, and it was read on stage, came up to me after the show and said, you know, I really like the show, but why didn't you use any of my stories? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, and I had 
the opposite experience from a second interviewee who is also in the audience who came up to me and said, wow, that show was so interesting. It really made me think about bathrooms and thank you so much for using my story and validating my words. I really appreciate it. And although I said, you're welcome, I thought to myself, I didn't use anything from your interview. And so one of the things that I realized is the politics of recognition in the space of the theater are very complicated. And so people identified with stories to the point where they thought those stories are mine when they in fact emerged from another interview. And then some people didn't recognize themselves in the stories. And I really don't think I changed the demographic information that much, but I really think it beautifully exposes the tension between truth and fiction fact and fantasy in the stories we tell and you know how we change and how stories are heard and interpreted but what I like to think is that we did capture a range of experiences that touched upon the the emotions and feelings of those in the audience and I mean one of the things that I think it's important to recognize is those who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans find themselves represented on stage typically in stereotypical ways. And also queer and trans characters are often deployed to get a laugh or to advance what is too often a normative or heterosexist plot line. And so I think we need to ask a lot of questions about representation, particularly with respect to those who are LGBT on stage. And I think one of the counters to this trend has been, as you say, with the use of verbatim theater. And the Laramie Projects, of course, is a very good example of that, where the use of first-person narratives, uh, individual stories, are used to convey the complexities of what one's life is when one is LGBT, to hopefully make an identification or a connection with someone in the audience who hasn't thought about what it means to be trans, who hasn't seriously thought about what it means if one is a feminine man or a masculine woman, or if someone um, has a sex reassignment, or if someone is gay or lesbian. You know, people who have cisgender privilege, people who are conventionally gendered and heterosexual, don't necessarily have to think about the complexities of the lives of those who aren't conventionally gendered and straight. And so I think one of the strengths of verbatim theater is it touches the audience emotionally. And if one can strike an identification with a character on a very human level, I think it prompts us to examine the assumptions we make about other people and to consider how serious, you know, one's investment in a given gender identity is. I mean, I think in theater as well, because there's a part of you that viscerally recognizes there's another human being there um, versus reading something or seeing a movie, that you find yourself identifying with a protagonist character, mm -hmm. no matter how different various aspects of their lives are mm -hmm. from your own. The, the connection that you're, you're making there in theater then and ends up being a more 
connecting on a deeper level mm-hmm. than you know on, a, on on an even more primal level than the the labels that we attach to ourselves or the mm-hmm. things we identify our identity there's like there's a human baseline i guess that we all mm-hmm. kind of hit there let me say that one of the challenges for me in creating queer bathroom stories and one of the challenges my director megan watson is currently negotiating is how do we represent gender and sexual based differences without inadvertently producing stereotypes. It's a very fine line between acknowledging the differences in queer and trans culture and not producing caricatures. And so one of the techniques we use both in the Fringe Festival and we will use in the upcoming production at Buddies and Bad Times Theatre is to mix and match the stories with their various characters. So for example, one of the actors, Hallie Burt, she is female, but she reads the stories told by a trans man. Uh, similarly, Tyson James, uh, who is not um, African-American, uh, nor is he a trans woman. He is, in fact, a drag queen, but not a trans woman. He reads the story of someone who was interviewed in the American South who remembers racially segregated bathrooms. Uh, similarly, Chai Ryan Spain, who is... Um, Actually, I'm not sure how he identifies his gender or sexuality. I shouldn't speak for him. But um, he does a really wonderful job reading the story of a two-spirited Ojibwe youth who was arrested in a bathroom for um, allegedly getting into a fight when actually he observed a fight and an attack against another trans patron in the bathroom. And I think frequently when we hear people tell our stories, we kind of look at the teller and think to ourselves, hmm, I can see how that might happen to you. But if we mix match the story with the person or the character who tells the story, suddenly it's more difficult to be stereotypical in our listening practices. And it forces us to imagine what it must have been like for that person without quickly explaining it away by saying, well, of course that happened. Look at the way you're dressed. It forces us to relate to the stories on on a more humane level and hopefully a much less stereotypical level. No, and I mean, that's, that's, I guess you're, you're encouraging that that blurring of lines and thinking more about the actual issues. Which mm-hmm. is just... And if I can say as well, I mean, at the Fringe Festival, we did have an audience, thankfully, full of LGBT folks from the Toronto community, which was fantastic. But we also had a lot of straight folks, you know, who are traditional Fringe goers, which was also fantastic. But some of those people who came to see our show might not have seen a queer production in the past, were not necessarily trans-literate. Mm-hmm. And so I had the good fortune, or perhaps the the misfortune of hearing some of the talk after the show because of course people didn't always know that I was the playwright and one of the things that I overheard people talking about was their distress at not knowing the actual real true gender identity 
or sexual orientation of the given characters. It was almost as if there was a reluctance to identify with the story unless there was a truth about the teller to be known. And of course, the whole point of the production was to challenge what counts as truth uh, when we're talking about people. And so that, that was one really interesting artistic and pedagogical challenge that I wanted to work creatively with. You know, what would it take for audiences to feel safe to let go of their quest for truth in the domain of gender? Maybe we could just find a way to treat others humanely without knowing if one is trans or cisgendered or male or female or queer or straight. Um, the other um, story, my partner is, uh, she doesn't identify as trans, although she identifies as butch. She's female bodied, but very masculine in her gender presentation. She was coming to one of the shows at the Fringe, and she arrived a little bit late, but she got there on, you know, pretty much on time, and she went to the bathroom because she thought, oh, I better use the bathroom before, you know, I find my seat in the theater. And so she walks into the women's bathroom, and another patron in the women's bathroom tells her, you're in the wrong bathroom. And then my partner looks at her and says, are you kidding me? Do you know what show you just <laughs> paid 10 bucks to see? It's called Queer Bathroom Monologues. I'm allowed to be in this bathroom. My partner wrote the play. And the patron was a little bit confused, but she just kind of left the bathroom and then after the play, she approached my partner just outside Theatre Pass Marai where the play was staged. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I'm really a good person. I'm a feminist. <laughs> I work for feminist organizations. And Tracy kept saying, it's okay. It's okay. But this woman really wouldn't let go of her need to apologize. So I think it's fair to say there were a mix of responses to the material. I think there's something very safe about the theater for the audience. Specifically, when you buy a ticket to see a show, you get to sit in a dark room and you get to be a voyeur without being identified or held responsible for the identifications or disidentifications you make with the character. And I think that there's some really exciting opportunities within the theater, specifically insofar, is it gives people license to think carefully about a story or a narrative or an experience had by a character without having to be too quick to commit, right? Frequently when you're in an audience watching a play, you might not like a character at the beginning of the show, but you might find that you like that character by the end of the show. You might find that although someone seemed to be really gruff or really greedy or really difficult at the beginning, suddenly you understand why they are the way they are in the world. And there's something about theater that I think has the capacity to generate empathy an identification, or at least a respectful questioning of what it might mean to be somebody else. So I think that there's something really exciting about the form of theater. At the same time, I think it's also possible that some audience members close down. They hear stories that can be traumatic, 
And some of the stories they hear, they might feel culpable themselves in the sense that they might think, wait, I've said things like that, or I've done things like that. I didn't mean to hurt someone. My intention was really this. And it is possible that audience members can get defensive because they see themselves as the wrongdoers in some of the stories that get told. But I think it's also important to remember that the point of learning is not always the point of teaching. And the point of change doesn't immediately happen following a performance or even in the middle of a performance. Sometimes I think, like one of the most powerful things I think about a good theatrical production is that the story bothers or unnerves or, you know, touches us in a way that we don't understand and spend the next few weeks afterward thinking about. Because I think if we can, you know, touch people in ways that are visceral and emotive and prompt them to think about or question something that they've taken for granted, I think that we've done our job. For sure. And I mean, and the beauty of theater is once they're in that seat in the dark, even if you aren't necessarily looking at the people next to you, mm -hmm. there's sort of that community responsibility of, well, I'm stuck here and mm -hmm. we're all going to sit through this together. Absolutely. As, as much as you're experiencing it on your own, you know, yeah. when you have the gasps from the far side of the, the dark sure. room. Sure. I have another funny autobiographical story to share. Sure. Uh, the first night I actually brought my mother to the queer bathroom monologues. Uh, my mother hasn't spent a lot of time in queer spaces, although, you know, she's not homophobic. But at the beginning of the play, the actors reach down deep into a toilet bowl and pull out a long, long lines of toilet paper resembling ancient scripts. Mm -hmm. And they read off all of the names for the bathroom, you know, used throughout history and across culture. And just at that moment, when they were reaching deep into the toilet bowl, my mother shrieks. And her <laughs> shriek was so loud, the whole audience, you know, everyone in the audience could hear. And I thought, isn't this interesting? You know, the difficulty my mom has wasn't with the gender or sexual <laughs> of the show. It was with the toilet. I guess that is sort of a shared human experience that we don't talk about. And it's interesting that that parallel is right there based on the, the setting mm, of yeah. these, these monologues. And I think that there's really something significant about the space of the bathroom for thinking about gender and sexuality. I mean, bathrooms, first of all, they are the last officially gender segregated spaces in most Western societies. They exist curiously on the cusp between the private and the public. And a lot of that which is deemed abject or gross or disgusting is projected onto the space of the toilet. And so if you can think of the, you know, the proverbial, you know, that happens or when we treat other people like it's also a way of saying people aren't human. And the way in which we gender bathrooms typically, you know, with the lady in the triangle skirt on one door and the stick figure man on the other, it really forces us to be rigid about recognizing the gender identity of others. And if you don't fit into one of those rooms, if you don't identify with the stick figure on the sign, in essence, you are treated like you're excommunicated. You have difficulty often accessing the space without harassment. And so one of the things that I think is really beautiful 
about what queer and trans people do in bathrooms is to reconfigure the design. And so, of course, we have a wonderful cruising culture in the men's room used by gay men, and we have fabulous creative ways in which people try to um, produce gender-inclusive bathroom spaces. Some of my favorite spaces are, for example, there's a place called the Whiskey Cafe in Montreal, and they have a female urinal with instructions on how to use it taped onto the wall. Um, at the LGBT Center, I visited in New York City Fierce Pussy, which is a group of feminists who do um, politically motivated public art, redid the bathrooms and wrote a series of questions on the wall like, what is your gender? How do you know? When did you get your gender? Please describe your gender. And so suddenly the bathroom becomes a pedagogical space where one is invited to think about gender in much more complicated ways than the stick figures ever invited us to do. And so while it's important to build gender inclusive bathroom designs, it's I think equally important to redesign bathrooms in ways that prompt us to think creatively and differently about gender. Because certainly bathrooms have been an important space for LGBT communities and the point isn't to make everything generic and open and neutral, although I think that that is one possibility. I think what we need to do is to figure out a way to work creatively with stick figures so that it's difficult to police or to set parameters on what counts or who counts as a woman and who counts as a man. So you've had, you had this experience with your first dabbles in theater in 2011. Have you found any of that washing back into your sort of academic explorations? Have there been things that you've that you've learned in your own work from working in a theatrical mm -hmm, medium? Mm -hmm. One of the things I learned is how much work is involved in producing a play. Sure. I radically underestimated the <laughs> amount of work involved in production and fundraising and publicity. Let me first say that. I thought writing a book as an academic was a lot of work. Well, it is a lot of work, but putting on a play is a whole new ball game for me. But one of the things that I have taken from the world of theater is I've tried very hard to make my lectures a lot more theatrical, a lot more interesting, a lot more performative, and it seems to be working. I teach a sociology of gender course, and there are 200 students enrolled in the course. And actually, my course evaluations were higher this year than they ever have <laughs> been before. So I credit that to, you know, bringing some of the performance arts I have, you know, picked up uh, into the classroom. And also I'm writing several other, well, I'm writing two other plays at the moment. And I'm trying to think of ways that I can make, you know, academic research and the kind of work I do not just publishable in academic journals, but available to a non-academic community-based audience. And I think theater is a really important venue because it gives us a way to, to think about, to animate, and to perform ideas and their complexities. And there's a way in which when you see performers on stage, knowledge is embodied and it's experienced as real or at least as emotionally invested in a way that 
just doesn't quite always catch in a more academic text. One of the exciting outcomes of the production of Queer Bathroom Monologues at the Fringe was I received probably an average of two or three invitations from colleges, universities, and human rights-based conferences across North America to stage the Queer Bathroom Monologues at their universities, colleges, or conference centers. And to date, we've actually seen readings or performances of what is now called Queer Bathroom Stories at nine venues. And so this is really exciting for me because, you know, I used to travel to give presentations at conferences. Now I get to travel to hear readings and to see productions of a script I wrote. And I get to answer questions. And there's a way in which there's a performative dimension to the presentations I then give, if in fact they've also invited me to give a lecture. And so this has been a lot of fun. It's given me a great opportunity to meet people across Canada and the U.S. who are committed to trans inclusivity and queer theory and LGBT work of various kinds. Well, I guess that's the thing too. Like, I guess a <laughs> one of your lectures can live as a transcript that's then shared with someone else, whereas a script can then have life breathed into it by any number of groups of people. Mm -hmm. And it's great to hear that it's been, it's taken on this life of its own and that you've been, you've been able to witness it. You know, I guess you just show up after they've done all their rehearsals and you just get to see the final product. Yes, that happens when I'm not the producer. Right. And so if anyone would like to produce the Queer Bathroom Stories again, just let me know. And I'm happy to come and watch and do a Q&A. But it, it's so, it, it's really nice also. The other advantage of seeing my play produced by another theater company is I really enjoy seeing how other people interpret the script, how other people choose to animate and perform the characters. And each time I hear the script read or see it performed, I feel like I learn something new. And it's really interesting because, you know, we can all read the same story, but the way we're touched by and affected by that story is so individual. And I really enjoy the way others have interpreted the script. And I realize every time I see this show performed, it's a different play. Queer Bathroom Stories, May 31st to June 15th at Buddies and Bad Times Theatre. Thank you, Shana. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca.